0: This is The Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, February 15th. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Mary-Margaret Olihan. The COVID-19 pandemic revealed
1: disturbing trends around how critical race theory and LGBTQ education were being promulgated in schools. Now, educators are attempting to hide their lesson plans from parents who would take issue with them. Our colleague Doug Blair speaks with the Director of Education Policy at the Goldwater Institute in Arizona, Matt Byenberg, about his organization's efforts at promoting curriculum transparency.
0: But before we get to Doug's conversation with Matt byenberg let's hit our top news stories of the day.
1: Congressman Jim Jordan weighed in Monday on a bombshell report that Hillary Clinton's campaign paid to infiltrate President Donald Trump's administration's servers. The Ohio Republican told Fox News that Clinton and her fellow operatives created the very news they were then tweeting about and trying to get the media to write about.
2: It's the template that the left uses, that the Democrats use, it's the same thing that happened four months ago when we found out the Department of Education went out and solicited the letter from the National School Board Association so they could do what they wanted to do, namely spy on parents. The same thing happened here. And this is what's so egregious and so wrong about it. I mean, you you think about they spied on a presidential campaign. That's as wrong as it gets. But then we found out from this filing that they actually spied on a sitting president, which is even worse.
1: Jordan emphasized that every
0: aspect of this probe is incredibly important, pushing for a full and complete investigation. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says he believes Russia will attack on Wednesday. So, in response, Zelensky has instructed the people of Ukraine to show their national pride on Wednesday by hanging the Ukrainian flag and putting on blue and yellow ribbons to show their national unity. Former CIA station chief Dan Hoffman told Fox News that a Russian invasion of Ukraine is certainly possible, though Putin could be using the threat of invasion to gain power and leverage in the region. Take a listen.
2: I would not rule out the possibility that that Vladimir Putin (laughs) is <laughs> using all the leverage that he has, the 130,000 troops, the military exercises in Belarus, the buildup in the Crimea, to extort Ukraine and the United States, the West writ large, to achieve. All that he wants without firing a shot. He's already starting to get quite a bit. President Zelensky's popularity is plummeting. Ukraine's economy is cratering. And we've already made some concessions. We're allowing the Russians uh, to gain access to our Aegis air defense system. We've offered that in in Poland and in Romania. We've withdrawn uh, our embassy down to just non emergency staff. We've withdrawn our military advisors and the OSCE has withdrawn its mission from monitoring the ongoing conflict in Donbas. Putin clearly wants more. That's why he's continuing to escalate and hasn't removed uh, the threat of military action. But it's still quite possible he might do so.
0: There are currently only 22 staff remaining at the American embassy in Ukraine, according to a report from Fox News. The U.S. is in the process of temporarily moving its embassy in Ukraine – from the capital city of Kyiv to the western city of Lviv. Lviv is about 45 miles from the border of Poland, and it's advantageous for the American embassy to be located closer to Poland for the time being because thousands of U.S. troops are being deployed to Poland's border. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz says that if Russia does launch an attack on Ukraine, Germany is prepared to impose very far-reaching and effective sanctions on Russia. We'll keep you all up to date on this story as it continues to unfold.
1: In Washington, D.C., Democratic Mayor Muriel Bowser announced Monday that on Tuesday, the city will be ending its mandate that businesses require patrons to show proof of vaccination. The city will not end its mask mandate until March 1st, she said. Bowser's vaccine mandate, which went into effect in January, only lasted about a month. But the mayor cited a decline in COVID cases as a reason for ending it. COVID is not as deadly as it was, she said in a press conference. Getting vaccinated and boosted, we can't emphasize enough. One D.C. bar that defied Bowser's mandate, the Big Board, has been punished by the city and stripped of its liquor license. The city did not address on Monday whether the bar has any hopes of survival
0: following the end of the mandate. Now stay tuned for Doug's conversation with Matt Beinberg as they discuss curriculum transparency.
3: At the Heritage Foundation, we believe that every single policy issue discussed in D.C. tells a story. So we want to tell it well. On the Heritage Explains podcast, co-hosts Tim Descher and Michelle Cordero take one policy issue a week, mix in a creative blend of clips, narration, and hard-hitting interviews to equip you on crucial issues in under 20 minutes. So get your story straight. Subscribe to Heritage Explains wherever you listen to podcasts.
4: My guest today is Matt Byenberg, director of education policy at the Goldwater Institute in Arizona. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. In light of increased national scrutiny surrounding things like critical race theory, LGBT education in schools, we've seen an uptick in states that have decided to draft laws to increase curriculum transparency. So you are from Arizona. Can you give us a little bit of an impression of what those efforts look like in your state?
3: Sure. Yeah. As you said, I think we're seeing a national effort to bring transparency to the content that's going into the classroom. So uh, we at Goldwater Institute actually a couple years ago put out a a policy report saying it's time that let's get some what we call academic transparency and essentially boiling down to saying, look, we're in the 21st century, let's make it so that parents are able to see what's actually being taught in the classroom is something as simple as having our schools post a list of the materials that are being used in the classroom on the school website so that parents can see what's actually in the schools, you know, when they're making an enrollment decision, when their kid is going to be advancing to the next class, what their kid may be learning this year. Um, And so essentially just a very simple idea that says, you know, right now it's very difficult, surprisingly difficult and happy to go more into this uh, for parents to actually see the content, the materials that are used for student instruction. And so um, Arizona, there's now a bill here, uh, SB 1211, uh, actually just advanced from the Senate Education Committee uh, this week uh, that that moves forward on that. And we've seen there are now about 20 other states that have introduced legislation along uh, along the same idea.
4: So really what this legislation is, it's just parents should have the right to see a list of the materials that children are being taught.
3: That's what it boils down to, uh, and you would think that that would be a pretty straightforward, no-nonsense kind of thing, and you know, we've spoken to a lot of folks, they're they're kind of shocked that that's not already the case. Um, now, that's not to say that there are already schools, both in K-12 and higher education, and individual teachers who will, will post their content online and show, you know, here's my syllabus, I am totally comfortable to, to share this, uh, and so it's something that is being done, um, and yet, when we look at schools, we've heard countless testimonies from parents across the country saying, My teacher is not doing this. My school is not doing this. When I'm trying to find out information, they are running into a brick wall. Uh, We're actually even representing a parent in Rhode Island who had an incoming kindergarten daughter, and she had some concerns about the content used at her school based on just some of the other things that that they put on their materials on their website. And so she asked for, for their curriculum, And they gave her a a runaround, gave her old curriculum documents, told her that she had to submit formal public records requests just to even know what was going to be used in the classroom. Uh, When she went through and complied with that, they then threatened to take legal action against her, saying that she was asking too many questions. The... National Education Association, largest teachers union in the country, stepped in and filed a lawsuit to block her access. So what you would think would be a, a pretty straightforward uh, request on behalf of parents is something that we've actually seen uh, incredible resistance from within the education community.
4: That parent that you're working with is Nicole Solas, who is a friend of the show. We've had her on a, num- a number of times. Um, how is that case going? Or, I guess are we seeing this is going well, that these types of legislative battles are are working, or are we seeing that they're getting a lot of pushback?
3: Yeah, I mean, those cases are still working their way through. Um, I think it's fairly clear um, that the arguments that are being put forward on the other side to to argue that the public and parents don't have a right to this content, uh, it really is a stretch on on the legal arguments that they're trying to make. Um, But, you know, her case obviously is is one that's gotten a lot of national attention but unfortunately it's it's you know one of many parents who have have run into this problem and we had you know several parents uh testifying this week in arizona about different experiences they've had the difficulty of trying to get access to the content that that their kids will encounter
4: what is the end goal of this kind of legislation like what are we trying to get out of these types of bills
3: Sure. I mean, ultimately, it's about empowering parents to know what content is there. It's bringing transparency. You know, these are our public schools. And it's to say we don't think that the content that's being taught to K-12 students should be materials that are taught in secret. And so it's to make that clear. It's to empower parents to have that information. You know, not only does it just give them that knowledge, it helps them be collaborative partners with the teachers to, to know what sort of content is being taught. It helps them make those informed decisions, and honestly, it actually helps teachers. Um, we've we've spoken ab- about this in the past, that right now, especially new teachers, when they come into the system, they're commonly expected to build their classrooms from scratch. You know, They may be handed a textbook, but then they're told, you need to go scour the Internet, search Google, uh, and find articles, YouTube videos, what have you. And teachers are spending, as they have reported from multiple national surveys, four hours every week just searching for materials, essentially reinventing the wheel each week, Whereas with something like this transparency proposal, teachers could come on and see what their peers are using, you know, what veteran teachers are using and save that time and be able to take great ideas and adapt it for their own classroom.
4: I think that's an angle that doesn't really get talked about all that much, but other teachers might appreciate having access to what their fellow educators are using.
3: That's right. And actually, we've had um, multiple teachers and, you know, testifying as a teacher in the face of union pressure is is pretty daunting. Um, But we've actually seen teachers testify in some of these states. There was one in North Carolina on a bill that would have brought uh, transparency to the materials. And she made exactly that point and said this would be a fantastic collaborative effort. I'm a former teacher. I'm a parent. I used to document all my materials and submit my lesson plans. Putting that information online now would be so much easier than what I had to do. And it would help other teachers see it. And in fact, so compelling was this point that a North Carolina legislator who opposed transparency did so on the grounds by saying she was concerned about who would get credit for those lesson plans because she didn't want someone just coming into the system and grabbing the best lesson plan, which is a pretty extraordinary claim to make because it's essentially doubling down on this idea that we want our teachers to be siloed in a sort of every man or woman for themself you know, approach instead of saying, yeah, let's put it up there. And if you know new new teachers want to come in and, and take inspiration or 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 use those materials, you've now just you know shared high quality materials instead of sending somebody on a scavenger hunt.
4: One of the things that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting is that some teachers are in favor of this. What is the response from some other teachers?
3: Sure. The teachers' unions themselves are uh, extremely opposed to the idea of transparency. Um, They have uh, uh, organized petitions. They have organized campaigns against this. Um, You know, these are obviously the same unions which tried very hard to shut down schools for the last, you know, one to two years. um, And they are now actively trying to shut down access to that content. Um, And essentially, what we've seen, even the the ACLU actually came out uh, just a few weeks ago, similarly, and said these curriculum transparency efforts are just a thinly veiled attempt to chill teachers ability to have important conversations about race and gender. And so they basically see this as a direct threat to their ability to push materials. Again, especially around sensitive topics like those, that they they clearly recognize that if parents could see what content w- was going into, you know, what sounds like, oh, it's just an innocuous conversation, um, if parents could actually see the materials that go into that, they recognize that parents w- would probably uh, find much of that to, to not be appropriate for the K-12 environment. So I, I think their other point is to argue that this is too burdensome on teachers, right? To say, well, this is another task on us, this is this is just too much work. And I think that's where, you know, we have pointed out that we literally have even had representatives in Arizona, for instance. The vice president of the teachers union has has previously come out and and opposed transparency, even in the same testimony that she turned around and said, look, I submit my lesson plan to to my principal and my site coach every week because I'm a professional. And so the argument that our teachers are able to document their lessons, their materials and their plans and have that be known within the school walls, but that somehow that's too burdensome to allow parents and the public to see it outside there, I think really is is a tough sell. And, you know, these transparency laws, we crafted model legislation um, that has, you know, helped uh, impact many of these bills. And it's very clear that schools and teachers can use something as simple as Google Docs. You know, you don't have to go build out a new website. It's literally as, as simple as, you know, Essentially, typing in the the, the basic information about, uh, you know, if you want to use a book and and you want to just type the the title of the author and and maybe a link to it, that's all you got to do. This isn't going and photocopying, you know, every page of of each work. It's really just putting together a simple syllabus. And so I think the argument that the other side has made, which they have have tried to, to beat the drum as loudly as possible to say this is unimaginably burdensome. While at the same time then turning around and saying, we're already fully transparent. In fact, many of us already document everything we're doing. You know, these these points are sort of at odds with each other. And I think it's because it's not something that is prohibitively difficult to do. And in fact, there's a strong precedent for teachers and schools already disclosing this kind of content.
4: You mentioned that the Goldwater Institute has drafted and created model legislation for lawmakers to follow if they want to insert this type of law into uh, their state's uh, laws, right? So, what does that model legislation actually look like?
3: Yeah, so we 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 put out our initial Academic Transparency Act legislation that that you know very uh, very directly just says. Each year, the school should post a list of the learning materials and activities on their website. And so, again, very much just, just a, a direct um, approach to, to have this information out there. We've since worked with... Um, other think tanks, with legislators, folks like the Manhattan Institute, Chris Rufo, uh, Stanley Kurtz, um, have have also gotten involved. And so we we also reissued a, a new version, the Sunlight and Learning Act, which takes that same model and again basically says let's make sure that we have written out a very clear uh, policy for how this can be implemented. Um, I think one of the difficulties is that we hear from the other side, oh, our curriculum is already transparent, um, and so you know if you just post, if you just pass a law that says, you know, post your curriculum online. What I think is a distinction lost on a lot of folks is curriculum may be just the officially adopted textbook and a few other resources at the district. What parents are are concerned about are all these supplemental materials, you know, the New York Times 1619 project, those essays that are attached to it or YouTube videos that go along with it. So our Sunlight and Learning Act model legislation is very clear and says post your textbooks, your articles, your videos, you know, to, to make clear what it is that's there, um, while also providing protections for uh, parents uh, to, to be sure that the content that the schools are using, you know, isn't something that the school can say, and we're also not going to let you come in and see it, um, that you're not allowed to, to say, sorry, this is... Um, you know, top secret, and you're not allowed to come down to our school site and and take a look at it for yourself. So putting some extra protections on there. um, But uh, yeah, we're, you know, we're excited to see so much momentum behind this nationally now.
4: Now, before we go any further talking about the sort of intricacies of bills like this, I think it might be helpful to give our listeners a bit of a background. Would you be able to go into how this type of response to education in terms of academic transparency came to the forefront?
3: Sure. So as I mentioned, you know, we've been working on this for a few years, um, uh, you know, basically recognizing that there is a concern about politics and content in the classroom. Um, And I think, you know, nothing really um, exemplifies this better than what we've seen from the the NEA, the National Education Association. So back in 2019, uh, they had a resolution. It was their national assembly uh, in which they said the NEA will rededicate itself to the pursuit of increased student learning in every public school in America by putting a renewed emphasis on quality education. NEA will make student learning the priority of the association." And it goes on. You know That sort of thing sounds fantastic. This teachers' union, the largest teachers' union in the country, voted that down. At the same time, they voted up a whole series of resolutions dealing with white fragility, racial reparations, abortion, American foreign policy, making very clear that they believed that politics needs to be infused into the classroom. And we've obviously only seen this escalate over the last, you know, uh, 18 months or, or two years, as we've seen things like critical race theory um, and that conversation gaining more national attention. And so I think that parents who already had concerns when things like the 1619 Project, you know, came out back in 2019, now seeing other materials compounding the the sort of uh, content that that clearly is not actually imparting knowledge that that students need to to thrive, you know, covering reading, writing, math, science, understanding of of his, historical fact, and instead supplanting that with efforts to, to really push ideological activism.
4: I want to follow up on that because you were quoted in an NBC article that was uh, titled, they fought critical race theory, now they're focusing on curriculum transparency, implying that... This is the sort of next battlefield in this fight over education. And you're quoted in this article as saying, people are going to disagree on a lot of these issues. Transparency is something I think that at least allows for that conversation to know what is being taught. Everybody should be able to rally around the fact that we shouldn't be teaching something in secret. Would you be able to expand on that a little bit more?
3: Sure. Yeah. You know, there's, there's two pieces to this. One is, is this really is a principle that regardless of your political leans, I think folks should be able to get behind this, this idea of our, our public schools should not be teaching content that we are prohibiting the public from knowing what's going into it. And because people are going to disagree about, well, you know, should this resource be used? Is this an appropriate instructional material? People are going to disagree about that. And rather than trying to have a one size fits all, Approach that says, well, we're going to hand down from on high the exact materials that you must use. You know education as a guiding principle, it is good to leave local control, right? so that we we can have a, a a variety and a diversity in terms of of the content that's used. And so having transparency says, look, it's not about trying to force uh, one set of materials on on one group or on another. Transparency allows for that plurality. At the same time, I think as, as referenced in that article, you know, we have seen a lot of support from folks like Chris Rufo, who, you know, kind of blew the whistle initially on critical race theory, uh, recognizing that while a lot of states have taken steps to ban critical race theory and, and particular tenets of it to narrowly say, look, we have existing state and federal laws that's aimed at preventing racial discrimination in our public institutions. Um, there's no good reason for those public institutions to be teaching racially discriminatory content, you know, things like Ibram Kennedy that explicitly calls for racial discrimination. But folks like Rufo who've said, okay, we've, we've got that on the books in several states, but even that still leaves uh, a piece that needs to be addressed, which is transparency, because we we hear over and over, right, from the, the uh, education community, from the Activists in the media you know critical race theory isn't taught. This is all just a a make-believe problem And I think transparency says all right look we're not going to play word games with you where you claim that Even though you're teaching Ibram Kendi's how to be an anti-racist which calls for racial discrimination If he doesn't use the words critical race theory, you know in a certain paragraph You can dance around and say, you know, that's not critical race theory Um, but at the end of the day If you have to disclose that that's what you're using, then parents can see that and expose it for what it is. And so I think that, um, yes, those folks who are also, you know, as we would pose critical race theory as having no place in um, those schools would see that transparency is is a even broader approach to make sure that we have accountability for what's being taught to our kids.
4: I think a lot of parents and a lot of Americans are resonating with that messaging because as we saw recently, education was such a huge deal in a bunch of these elections that just kind of happened, including the governor's race in Virginia. I think Glenn Youngkin kind of rode this wave of anti-critical race theory, anti-politicization of education to uh, the governor's mansion. I want to ask if that sort of has happened in Arizona. Has education affected previous elections in Arizona in the same way it might have affected the election in Virginia?
3: Yeah, I mean er, education is is always a major issue in Arizona. Um, we've had education walkouts that the unions uh, organized. We've had. Um, major questions around funding and school choice. Our legislature here uh, just invested a few years ago uh, $600 million to give a a 20% pay raise to the teachers here. Um, And then we saw the unions turn around and and basically say that that was was nothing. And so we've we've had education at the forefront of issues. Um, I think that especially in light of the pandemic with the school shutdowns and with parents seeing the content that's being taught, um, the focus on that has, has shifted somewhat to say, um, you know, this is not just a conversation where we were being told the solution is just put more money into our schools. I think it started to raise a lot of questions about saying, Well, are the schools satisfying their basic requirements of providing instruction to students and providing instruction to students that is academically rigorous and quality as opposed to ideological activism?
4: That same NBC article that we were referring to earlier in the interview reported that there are free speech concerns with this type of legislation. Are there any implications for free speech with bills like this?
3: Yeah, that, that I think you know the the ACLU and the groups who have come out and said that this is really just an, an effort to chill speech from from uh, you know our, our conversations about race and gender. You know, we saw a huge backlash against that sentiment from from actual free speech advocates who said this is nonsense. You know, transparency uh, in what our government is doing, what our state employees, what our teachers at our state you know public schools are teaching. To say that that should be public is somehow inhibiting free speech is nonsense, um, and I think that that I you know parents and the public can see through that um, because again the, the concern from from the opponents is they don't want parents and the public to know what's being taught. Uh, you know our K-12 teachers are are not. Um, brought on board to to preach political ideology, they are brought on board to educate students. And so, to say that we as taxpayers expect to know what our public institutions are teaching is somehow inhibiting free speech. Uh, I think that sentiment was uh, roundly and, and rightfully condemned as as nonsense.
4: So maybe playing devil's advocate briefly here. I- some people on the left might see books getting removed from libraries or books getting removed from schools and say that that is the issue with free speech. Uh, does this legislation that the Goldwater Institute is proposing have any provisions for what happens when a parent sees a book that they don't like, that they see a book that they find uh, inappropriate for a child?
3: Yeah, the, the legislation, it, it does not contain any kind of provisions uh, beyond the, the, providing information to the parents about what's in there. Um, and, you know, we saw a, a controversy recently about, uh, you know, the book Mouse. Uh, and, you know, folks like Robert Pondiscio, a scholar over at AEI, have written on this. The, the left claims that it's, you know, book banning if a school decides to use one book or another. And there's a, a very large distinction between saying... You know, we have a finite amount of time and and finite resources. You know, by definition, when a school selects one textbook or one novel or one book as opposed to another, they don't have infinite time, right? You have to choose one set of books or another. To say that you have banned or censored every book that you happen not to choose, I think, is nonsense. And so, again, to the extent that there uh, are—if you have parents who would say, look, I'm I'm uncomfortable with, uh, you know, uh, something like Ibram Kendi's book— uh, I think that that, that is a, a very fair point to to arrive at to say maybe we should have a conversation about whether this is appropriate to be assigned to to the schools and if a school board wants to say look we're we're choosing to to assign a book um, or, or or you know one book or another if the parents think that no this isn't the route we want to go that's especially where having options for things like school choice right it doesn't require that everybody assign the same set of books and I think arguing that. Uh, you know, to have public awareness and public accountability is somehow akin to censorship, is is completely missing the mark.
4: Do we see this type of legislation in terms of academic transparency popping up in other states?
3: Yeah. So we now have about 20 states that that have come on board. Um, The the governor here in Arizona mentioned this in his State of the State address. Uh, Iowa's governor just a few days ago uh, announced um, support for it. Uh, We've seen states ranging from uh, even even in some blue states, uh, like Illinois, uh, we've seen support, but uh, uh, Wisconsin actually passed, both chambers of their legislature passed uh, a bill based on that same concept uh, a few months back, and it was vetoed by their governor. Um, so we are seeing an enormous push now for this legislation, um, while obviously still resistance from it from those who are typically more aligned with sort of the establishment status quo.
4: Do we see these getting successfully implemented in the near future and maybe other states where they're not appearing currently?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think that, um, you know, Arizona's, for instance, the the bill moving here, SB 1211, that just passed out of our Senate Education Committee earlier this week and is now, you know, headed for the full Senate. um, The Indiana um, House of Representatives, I think just about a week or two ago, passed legislation around this. So I think that we are likely to see, even in the next few weeks or months, uh, several states enact. Uh, this kind of legislation. And I do think that as, as more do it, you're going to see a, a sort of um, a domino effect as, as states realize that there is no, you know, no reason to, to be blocking this. So legislators obviously are always cautious about trying something new. Um, but I think especially as states, you know, lead on this, we will see even more come on board and say, yeah, absolutely, we, we should be allowing our, um, the content in our classrooms to, to be visible to, to parents and the public.
4: Before we wrap up, I want to give you the opportunity to let listeners know where they can go to learn more about these types of proposals.
3: Sure. Yeah, you can. You know, uh, we have uh, uh, Twitter accounts. Um, we have our GoldwaterInstitute.org website. Um, you can check out our, our model policy, the Sunlight and Learning Act. Um, we've put out some videos and content around this. I'd be happy to, to share. Um, but we have we've tried to make this something that uh, you know is is very clear in states like Arizona where legislation is moving to to have folks you know reach out and and contact their their lawmakers to say, hey, look, this is the kind of thing that we need. Um, I think is are absolutely the kind of steps that, that folks can take.
4: Excellent. That was Matt Beinberg, Director of Education Policy at the Goldwater Institute in Arizona. Matt, really
3: appreciate you coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me.
0: And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to the Daily Signal Podcast. You can find the Daily Signal Podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio.
1: Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to
0: subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you all right back here tomorrow morning.
2: The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Giney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit dailysignal.com.